Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Tonight, we're joined by a 20-year expert in management and leadership, but he's not going to preach from the mountain. We are going to have so much fun with Jeff Aiken of Starfleet Leadership. He has an outstanding blog, podcast. We go back and forth, Layson and I, about which one we enjoy more. But he mixes in Star Trek, real-life practical lessons that I think you can incorporate. If it's the dinner table, the boardroom, the locker room, there's so many things we're going to jump in and enjoy. But Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Jeff Layson, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I know I just sang your praises a little bit, but can you take us through how you combined leadership with Star Trek? Well, I like to say that one day I was walking down the street, and then I was also walking down the street. I was carrying a jar of Star Trek, and I was carrying a bar of leadership, and I crashed into it myself, right? Two great tastes that taste great together. Maybe somebody should do a commercial or something like that. But no, like I said, I've, I've worked for a long time in in management and leadership. I think those are two different things, right? And uh, and I think that being a good manager often means being a good leader. Being a good leader often means being a good manager. But man, I don't know if either of you have spent any time reading books, watching talks, doing courses for leadership. They're, they're boring, like, like that's, let's just call it what it is. Leadership stuff is, is we've made it big. We've made it like important, grandiose sounding and kind of boring. And I was in a meeting one time. You have probably been in this exact same meeting where I'm hearing everything. And I'm just like, dude, I, I've been here before. We already made these decisions. We already assigned these action items. Why are we still talking about this? And I got pissed, right? And I smacked the table and I said, I want meetings like Captain Kirk has meetings, right? Issue, discussion, decision, action, boom. And this light went off for me. So I went home and I watched Star Trek. And that could be a statement I say most any day. But this day I watched it with intention and I realized, oh my gosh, there is a treasure trove of management, leadership. I've even gotten like Lean and Six Sigma lessons out of episodes of Star Trek. And that's when the light went off where, okay, this is going to be my thing. Like, I love leadership, love Star Trek. And now, like, I figured out a way to make them do it together. So when I'm watching Star Trek and my wife's like, hey, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. I'm like, honey, no, 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 I'd love to. But I'm working, working right now. Uh, It's great. And I love the part of, there's a lot of leaders that have meetings just because you're supposed to. You have meetings because you're supposed to have meetings. But you touched on uh, something I'd like you to expand on, the difference between management and leadership. Oh, man. So first, I'm glad that like you're not, you're not arguing with me because I get people who are just like, well, if you're a manager, you're in a leadership position. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's because your organization doesn't understand the difference between the two. To make it really simple, managers deal with things. Leaders deal with people, 
That's simple, right? If I'm a manager, I have to know what my resources are. Those could be workstations or telecom things or people. could be people as well. If I'm a leader, I'm really worried at a high level about two things. Who are the people I'm working with and where am I taking them to? Like, that's it. Like, what's my vision and how do I get them from point A to point B without having to stop at W, then X, then L, and all over the place like most... uh, most companies I've ever worked for tend to uh, move you from A to B. And you're almost leading me right into this. It's kind of your why. And I love asking a lot of our guests, uh, what's your why? And, and you have a great theory that I hope you share on, you know, your why and the levels of why. Can you expand on that for me? Yeah, definitely. So your why... I mean, and and you know this, I think a lot of your listeners know this as well, but your why is what wakes you up in the morning, right? And so I've had jobs as an example, like right now I'm managing. So one of the cool things I think that I bring to the table that other people who talk leadership don't is I'm still working. Like I'm a manager doing the work. I'm in an executive position in a public sector organization right now, a really big one. But I do that because part of my why It's like, I care about people and I want to improve workplaces. And I get to do that every day when I wake up. Now, the business that the programs I manage do, yeah, I have a passing interest in, you know, whatever. Like I have a program that opens the mail for the organization. I don't really care, (laughs) you know, about learning about mail slicers or whatever. What I do care about is making sure the people that are showing up to do that work are well taken care of. They, they, they have everything they need and they can advance. They can grow and do things. When your why is powerful enough, the what suddenly doesn't matter as much anymore. You know, my what can be a one-on-one conversation with a coaching client through the Starfleet Leadership Academy. It can be a group conversation with people in my mail program. Either way, I'm living my why and doing the thing. I think, you know, for me, Work is changing, right? We're in early 2023, and there's this really weird kind of disconnect between what people seem to want and what workplaces are giving them. And I think it's going to come to a head here pretty soon, and we're going to see some massive corporations start hemorrhaging people because they're going to find other places to go where they're taken care of. It's that paradigm shift between KPIs, numbers, and profit, and like retention and promotion and morale and engagement, all those soft things that when I got into management, we didn't have time for. But my why, like I said, is to make life better for people, improve workplaces. And so like, I'll show up anywhere. <laughs> like literally I'll show up anywhere to make that happen. And that's kind of the, the back to the point is when you have a strong why, that's what you do. You will show up anywhere, anytime, it doesn't even really matter what's on the paycheck when you're done at it. I got to do my why. And that's, that's what really matters. You know, Jeff, you have uh, in a theory of almost looking in the mirror. And when you come up with maybe it's a goal, but you ask yourself, why? Why are you coming up with, you know, I want to be the CEO of the tech firm. And you have to ask yourself why a few times and it almost, am I correct, that forces you to reflect on your path. 
Absolutely. I use a tool. It's a it's a problem solving tool. It's called the Five Whys. And it's there's I think there's actually books written about it, but it's usually applied to a problem. Like the story people talk about is something to do with the um with the Lincoln Memorial or something like that. But the thing is, I reflect on myself. Why do I want to be the CEO of this tech company? Well, because it's a cool title and I can make some big changes. Well, why do I want to make big changes? Well, I want to make big changes, you know, because I, I care about the people that work there and I want that. Well, why do and you keep asking that? And generally, by the time you get to five, you're going to land on this golden nugget where that's your true desire, like the true thing you want. And maybe in that exercise, you learn actually being CEO of this tech company is not the right path for me at all. What I actually need to do is start my own company doing this, or I need to go into manufacturing over here and do this thing because you really drill down into you know what, like what really matters. Jeff, what is it about Star Trek that resonates so deeply with everyone? I mean, we're talking about a, a show that started in the 60s. Today, there are, are there's different variations of you know of the show that have continued over the years. There's been movies. There's been the animated series. What did Roddenberry do to, to create just this incredible, I, I guess you know, franchise that just continues to 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 grow and astound the world? Well, you got really attractive people to put on film. I mean, that's what you do, right? Put them in tight outfits and then just said, "Hey, keep going." <laughs> no, actually. What he did is he painted a picture, right? So remember earlier I said, like, that's what a leader does, right? Where am I, where am I leading you to? Gene Roddenberry created this vision of where he's taking people to. And listen, it's beautiful, right? Like people care about people. We don't, we're not hung up on things like what's the color of your skin or you know, how do you express yourself sexually? Like, we don't care about that stuff anymore. They even took it so far as to say, we don't even care about money at all. He created this utopian society. He actually had this rule that they got rid of after he passed away and wasn't uh, wasn't part of the production anymore. But he had a rule that cast members, like on the bridge, could not have conflict with each other because he believed that humanity could transcend interpersonal conflict. And so I think it's that dream that he sets up. I know that's what attracts me to it. You know, I I was introduced to Star Trek as a kid. My mom was a big fan. She loved loved Mr. Spock, right? I mean, who, what's there not to love? <laughs> but we'd watch it growing up. I remember Star Trek II came out, I think, in 1982. And we rented it on Betamax because we, we made that losing bet. And I got to stay up late to watch it with my parents. Like, that was a big deal, you know, to, to watch that movie. And at the time... You know, I was like, I don't know, eight years old or whatever. And I just thought it was fun. You know, I liked the shoot 'em up stuff. I liked the aliens. I liked the spaceships. But over time, like those messages slowly kind of found their way into my brain. And I think that's what happens as people grow up with the franchise. They realize that what this really is, is gorgeous wrapping paper, right? With the USS Enterprise and amazing people and all this stuff. But with this message that just straight punches you in the face that if I told you point blank face to face, you'd either get offended, you'd turn off the TV, you'd think I was a nut job. But when you wrap it the way Gene Roddenberry wrapped it, now not only do I want to hear it, 
but I'll pay, I'll go to the movies, right? I'll lay down real money to see it. I'll get a streaming service because that's the only way they show it anymore. I'll pay every month to watch it. They have like six or seven new series in active production right now. And I'll sit and watch all of that because he delivered this message to me that I never knew I needed to hear. And again, you know, considering that he's writing it in a very tumultuous time in our country, and he has the courage to address issues on the show, like you kind of say, he doesn't do it in your face, but he does it in a way to get the message across. And I always have felt that that's what great storytelling does. And I think sci-fi specifically, like science fiction, is such a great a great tool for doing that, you know, because we can take a problem or we can take a controversial thing. We can slap some makeup and funny ears on it. And then all of a sudden we're not talking about humanity. You know, we're not talking about that. There's the epic uh, original series episode. Uh, it's called uh, let that be your last battlefield, but it's got the dude who's half black and half white and the other dude who's half black and half white. And they genocide each other. They're going to take down the enterprise and everything. Cause one dude is black on the right side. Another dude is white on the black side, on the on the on the right side, and that makes all the difference in the. I mean, we watch it now with our sensibilities, and it's so bonk bonk on the head. But in like 1967, 68, this was like this was groundbreaking stuff, and people. I mean, it was, and again, it was wrapped up with action, with drama, some fun violence. So people were like, "Yeah, yeah, give me more, give me more." And then they dropped a line where he's just like, hey, "He's black on the right side," like, "Duh!" And all of a sudden, you're just like wow, am I that guy? Like, am I? Wow, I need to think about this. Okay, so let's talk about the original series, James Tiberius Kirk. How would you describe his leadership style? What is it that makes Kirk Kirk as a leader? In, so I'm going to use a line from The Next Generation to describe him, but in The Next Generation, Spock showed up for a two-parter called Unification. And in that, he said that Kirk was famous and successful for his cowboy diplomacy. So Kirk, of all the captains, I think was an excellent manager, right? Like he, he manages resources well. He developed his teams well. He did, and you can see evidence of it in the show. One thing I love about the original series is they have scenes where like, no one's doing anything, which is like 98% of work, right? Where like you just show up and you sit around and you wait for the report to come through. But he's, you know, actively engaging with his team. But then when the exciting stuff comes, here's what makes Kirk Kirk. I'm going to go first. I'm going to get in the front. I'm going to take all the risks. There's a downside to that, right? Like he should be letting other people go. I always say one of the real roles of an effective leader is to develop their bench, you know, go ahead and let them go out, let the second, third string go out, get some reps and some things. Kirk, not so good at that, but he also to a fault will physically, emotionally, in every way, protect his entire crew. He'll do anything he can to stop them from being hurt or having to put themselves uh, in personal at personal risk. And I think ultimately what makes Kirk Kirk is the only thing Kirk loves more than himself <laughs> is his ship and his crew. Like he has a true, not even a parental love. Like he just has like a societal, like truly brotherly caring love for everyone that he works with. How do you feel that, 
in the recent movies, the J.J. The Abrams production, do you feel like that the, the leadership was still consistent with Chris Pine, you know, playing Kirk in, in terms of did it honor the original, you know, in, design of, of the original series? And then going into the movies, you know, the, the movies that were done, you know, starting with the, the first Star Trek going all the way to what uh, to the, the, the latter ones. I think they did a pretty good job. It's interesting because when I think about Chris Pine and what they call the Kelvin-verse movies, those new ones, they call that because the, the USS Kelvin is George Kirk, James Kirk's dad's ship that gets blown up in the first scene. Spoiler, spoiler alert if no one, no one has seen the new movies. But uh, they dropped the management aspects of things and leaned on the cowboy diplomacy things because here's the other like dirty secret about management and leadership. Management is not sexy. It's not exciting. It doesn't make for really good television. It doesn't make for good movies unless it's wrapped up with other stuff. So in the new movies with Chris Pine, they're just like, forget it. We're just going to have you be guy who goes to the front of the line. You're the superhero who saves everybody. What I, where I think they, I don't know, kind of lost, lost touch in the newer movies is they just took like the William Shatner, James Kirk. And they're like, what if we ramped up his, emotional response times 800, right? Like James Kirk was always an emotional person, but he was also a professional, you know, like he could stop and be, okay, I'm going to be cool in this moment. I'm going to say the things I need to say, and I'm going to pull you aside and I'm going to rip you a new one behind closed doors. Chris Pine. Nope. I got the bad guy on the screen and everything going on. I'm going to stop everything right now so I can throw my fit. But I also think that was like early mid two thousands kind of, well, and maybe even, even a little more modern kind of filmmaking that happens. Okay, so if someone is going back and wants to go back to the original series or the movies, which ones would you recommend that has like the best leadership moments, the best leadership examples? Of course, in my mind, it has to be the Kobayashi, Kobayashi Maru. Right. You know, that, that, that's whole scenario of your training, you're preparing, but hey, there comes a time you're just going to have to break the rules here. Yeah, or or accept that you're going to lose. You know, I think the Kobayashi Maru, which was introduced in Star Trek II, fun little trivia thing, they introduced that because this back in the 70s and 80s, I, I don't know, maybe there's people listening who don't know this, but there was no internet back then. <laughs> there was like, like right now, you know, someone shows up on set somewhere and it blows up everywhere and they know. Back then, it took a lot for rumors to get out. And there was a rumor that got out they were going to kill Spock. And so they created this whole Kobayashi Maru scene for him to die in like the scenario in, in the you know safe scenario. So it's like, oh, there he died. Ah, ha ha ha. And then you get to the end of the movie, like, oh my God, they actually killed him. <laughs> I can't spoiler alert again if no one has seen an almost 40-year-old movie. But I think what I love about the Kobayashi Maru is it's a no-win situation. Like there is no right answer. And we are right here in this in this recording. We are men of a certain age uh, who have you know had certain career paths, and we have faced those no win scenarios. I'm going to say more than a handful of times, you know, where it's just like I don't. There's not a right answer. Who do I want to upset? Who do I want to make happy? How much am I willing to shoulder on myself? That to me, that's rubber hitting the road kind of leadership right there. And the Kobayashi Maru creates that. But I also think if you want to go back to the original series, 
you've got to watch. There's Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And the one I always tell people to go watch is Balance of Terror. It's just such a great episode. It's where the we see the Romulans for the first time. But it's, we have you see Kirk and this enemy Romulan guy just develop such a professional respect for each other. It's kind of that game-recognized game thing, and it's such a well-done episode. Let me just ask you real quick on that. You've got Klingons, you've got Romulans. It, 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 Roddenberry is stereotyping or, or kind of casting them as kind of the, I guess, Russians, Chinese of that period. How, is that the best way to, to describe it for those who do like me? I, I, I'm born in 67. I grew up in that I grew up in that Cold War period. So is that kind of the closest way of kind of trying to, to kind, of, kind of connect that? Definitely. I think with the Klingons too, a lot of Vietnam really comes into that as well. The original series at its core, if you strip away a lot of the episodes and a lot of the stuff was really a commentary on Vietnam. And so, I mean, and there are episodes, um, oh gosh, there's one I think called the Omega Alternative or something like that. That is, I mean, it's just a beat for beat. Like, hey, we gave weapons to these people and then we set this up and oh, then the Klingons showed up and this thing happened. So yeah, it's definitely just that whole Soviet China, just the whole communist piece, and then peppering in any commentary Roddenberry could throw in on, on Vietnam. Jeff, so many leaders were doing a good job with their teams in any aspect, and then the curveball of COVID hits. And now you're tasked with leading a team, whatever team may be, via Zoom. How, what did you see, good or bad, leaders, and how did they make that adjustment? What I saw for bad leaders, I saw a lot of bad leadership when this first happened because we didn't know what to do. Like I, I'm going to say things about people, but I really want like you. It's easy now. It's been over three years, you know, and our minds forget a lot of things. But we had no idea what was going on. I was working for a large organization at the time, about 15,000 employees. And we had made the statement that, hey, yeah, pre-COVID, we're like, yeah, we'll let people work from home eventually, right? Like, we got to get our tech up to date. We got to make some investments. We got to plan. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. I was in the executive team meeting on Thursday. And like Thursday at 3 p.m., we decided we're sending people home. And on Monday, they were home. Like in three days, we did a thing we thought was going to take us years to get done. But that never got the people ready. That just got the infrastructure, like the physical infrastructure in place that's still to this day evolving, right? I mean, Zoom today is a lot different than the Zoom of 2020. But what a lot of people did was try to replicate what was happening in the office. As humans, we get comfortable with something, right? A location, a person, interactions, the the, the routine of our day. And that got shaken up for us. And instead of just kind of my my daughter and I both study Aikido and a big part of Aikido, Judo, you know, is to just go, you go with the flow, you go with the momentum, you move with it. And a lot of leaders did not do that. They went Taekwondo on it instead. And they're like, I'm going to stop you in your tracks and roundhouse kick you in the face. And it's like, <laughs> funny thing. Uh, I don't care about your kicks. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep coming. And so for leaders that tried to recreate what was happening those were the leaders that failed. Those are the leaders that were quick to call and mandate returns to office for people. I personally, I'm a fan of people working in the office because I think there's a certain, I don't know, kind of tenor that you can create a vibe that can come out of that. But I think that I, 
what I don't think it's what we're actually doing is you just try to create the environment where people want to be there, you know, and I think, and the moment you mandate a thing, you have failed as a leader outside of crises and things like that, that happen. But what good leaders did is they moved with it. Right. And so I'm going to use the, the Aikido concept of my, that we do. So in Aikido, Aikido is a very misunderstood martial art. Thank you, Steven Seagal for, for that. But it's not about winning fights, right? Like if I go study Taekwondo or karate or something like that, I'm going to go to a tournament and I'm going to win. I'm going to go beat people. Aikido is about avoiding the fight altogether. So I use the person's momentum. I take them down to the ground or whatever. And then I create space or what they call my eye. So in, in, well, I used to roll jujitsu for a little while, right? And it's like, if you get the person down, you clamp on, you roll with them and try and keep a hold because you're trying to get them to tap out or you're trying to break something. And Aikido, I want to get them down, set to the side, move away and give an opportunity for that conflict to go away or for me to get out of dodge, right? Like if I know things aren't going to go well. And so for leaders that were successful in COVID, they did that. They rolled with the things that happened and then they backed off and they just let people be people and do their work. One of the main kind of like resistances to, to working from home or remote work that predates COVID is, you know, how, how do I know they're working? You know, I mean, these are stories I, I, you've heard, your listeners have heard, but I will never forget. I was working in HR, which is more an indictment of HR than it is an endorsement of my skills. <laughs> but I was working in HR and we had a pretty big group of people and we had a team that handled FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act request that came through because that is overly bureaucratic and a bunch of nonsense, but it's a great, it's a great thing we offer. Just wish it could be a little simpler. But I had a gentleman on that team who was a terrible performer. So I pulled our director over who kiboshed any work from home. And I said, oh, I'll call him Matt. I said, I see Matt over there. See that guy? Yeah. What's he doing? Oh, he's working. I can see him plugging away on his computer. I'm like, walk with me. We walk around, you know, make the big circle so he can see over his cube wall and he's on Facebook. And I'm like that, that is six hours and 14 minutes of his eight hour day, every day floating on Facebook. If you don't know that your team is working it doesn't matter if they're in the office or at home, right? Like that's a management principle. You should be able to measure the work that's being produced. But managers got on this place. Leaders got in this place of like, I have to see you to know that your work, if we're having a meeting, I have to see you to be able to have an effective meeting. Well, I started, I started the Starfleet Leadership Academy post pandemic because I had time on my hands. I wasn't commuting anymore. And I was like, I can do this now. And I have created relationships with people internationally. I'm talking to the two of you right now. And all because it, you don't have to be in the same space, you know, physically to do things. Is it easier? Heck yes, absolutely. No question. But is it possible to do it other ways? Yes. But the leader has to be open to that. The leader has to be open to roll and create my eye to let people be comfortable in their space, whether they're in the office, the boardroom, the conference room, or stretched all across the globe doing work. I think if I were to boil down like an effective leaders and effective managers, two traits that will separate a highly performing one from everyone else's two traits are knowing when to shut up and when to get out of the way. 
and just let people do great things. And that's what we saw in the pandemic. The ones who did that had successful teams. Jeff, you're hiring Layson, and obviously we would all agree that a happy employee makes better widgets. We're all more productive. You need Layson to succeed. He wants to succeed. How do you attack onboarding, bringing him into your company culture, and you're doing it, it's a hybrid, if that, or maybe it's totally an online. How do you incorporate him set him up to succeed? Well, first, I hire someone other than Layson because I want them to be successful. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. No, I, I would do it almost the exact same way as I would in person. Because, Jeff, here's, here's one of the dirty secrets that we won't admit as a society. Stuff wasn't great pre-pandemic. Like, we weren't nailing it at work. We were not onboarding people successfully. We were not retaining people successfully. We've created this little myth. Some people have this fantasy in their heads that pre-pandemic, it was great. And it was so much easier to bring someone into my culture and to help set them up for success. But we all know that's just false. It's just not true. But in a hybrid environment, let's just say even a straight-up remote environment. I, I hired two managers around the same time, gosh, about two years ago. So we were just kind of getting our feet on the ground in this, in this, in this new COVID, post-COVID space or whatever we're going to call it. I didn't meet either of them in person until about six months ago. So these are leaders that I have that are managing programs and, and gosh, one of them, a little over 100 people that they're managing. I had to bring them into the culture, hand them my vision and let them carry that just like this, through a screen, remotely. And the way you do that is an investment of time. Someone asked me a powerful question a while ago that reflects well here, and they said, what role does compassion play? Compassion, what role does compassion play as a, as a, as a leader? And I said, five years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I'd say, none. I just need to get my numbers, meet my metrics, hit my KPIs, and keep my shareholders happy. If I can do that, it's all good. Now, it's like 104% of my job because I need to just spend time one-on-one -on -one with you talking, listening, but then also making sure and having some accountabilities built in. I think this is the key thing for a culture. Culture, to me, is created from two different things. What I say as the leader and what I tolerate as the leader. And the sad thing is those are two very different things a lot of the time. So... I need to do the pre-work before I bring Lason on. I need to make sure that the things I'm saying line up with the things I'm tolerating. So when he does go into the office or he goes into a huddle or a team meeting or something like that, all the stuff I have spewing out of my mouth, he actually observes happening. One of the things I talk about on my podcast, and I've written a couple blog articles about it as well, is we will ask people like like you would ask me. You'd come in, you know, as as, as my as my director or whatever, and say, "So you got Layson coming on board? How how has his onboarding been? You know, has that been successful or not?" And traditionally, you would expect me to pull out some metrics. Well, he's taken these trainings, and uh, he's attended these things, and his attendance is this, and be able to show you on a couple PowerPoints. I'm trying to make the ugh, PowerPoint slides. Ugh. Hey, PowerPoint, but you, I need to show you his success on, on slides. But what I believe is you should be able to look, you should watch and observe and see, oh, well, these are the things that are happening. 
So now I know it's successful or not, right? Layson is successful in his onboarding because look, he's leading meetings. And when people leave that meeting, they're saying and using the language that Jeff says uh, that, that when he reports to me, he says, oh yeah, we talk about this all the time. And then when I pop into a meeting that Layson's running and Jeff's not in, hey, they're saying those same things and they're doing those things. But there has to be a through line. And this is, I guess, again, kind of the big magic, dirty secret These are the things you have to do, whether you're remote, whether you're hybrid, whether you're in the office, just really aligning what you say, what you tolerate, and then just say it a whole lot. (laughs) Like, I think a really good leader will never, ever shut up about their vision and the culture that they're trying to, to create. One of my favorite things to do when someone brings a problem to me, Jeff, this thing happened. Oh my gosh, what do I do? Well, Layson, what do you... What do you think I'm going to say? Like, what do you think? Well, you're going to say blah, blah, blah. Yep, that's right. Let me know if you need any help with that. I'm out. (laughs) I love it. Jeff, how about the relationship between senior leadership and an employee? Can they be friends? How do you draw that line that I still need you to meet your quota or hold the standard up, but having that friendship? How do you draw the line? It's hard. It's really hard. I, I like to use the kind of the guiding, I have a couple of guiding principles. One is I don't think it's appropriate to be like friends, bros, buddies. I, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for a bad ending for both of you and the organization, but you can still be friendly, right? And you can still care and you can still have compassion. I employ what I call the U-Haul test, right? So if you and I, so I've hired Layson and he's promoted and now he and I are peers and we're buddies, we hang out, whatever. And he's like, I'm going to move. I'm moving this weekend. Would you mind picking up a U-Haul, meeting me at my house and helping me move? Well, Layson and I are peers or we're buddies outside of work. That is appropriate. You report to me and I'm getting a U-Haul and helping you move. That is wildly inappropriate unless I'm helping move you out of like an abusive situation or some sort of a like life intervention sort of a thing. But that's the test, right? Am I going to pick up a U-Haul and help you move? Okay, I've crossed the line. But the way you can really balance that, and there's an excellent episode of Star Trek Voyager where Captain Janeway does this. It's this, I have have this episode, so it's like in my head. It's the sixth episode of the first season, The Cloud. And the premise of Voyager is that the ship, through intergalactic cosmic stuff, gets blasted 70,000 light years away from known space. And no one knows that they're gone. And they've got to hump their way back over 70 years to get home. And she realizes this isn't a traditional, like, captain and crew situation where, you know, I can leave, they can leave. There's a real line delineation of, of hierarchy and those things. Like, this is going to be more of a family setup. But also, I'm still the captain, and I have to balance that. I have to be captain. I have to be mother. I have to be friend. I have to be confidant. But I have to, above all, be the leader that's professional and has kind of that that border between them and everyone else. And the way she really does it is it's just a, it's just another version of the U-Haul test where she'll have a surface level conversation. She'll talk about emotions with people. She'll demonstrate compassion. But when it starts being more about like hanging out 
or things like that, she draws a line. And there's a great scene in, I forget the name of this episode. Now I feel really bad. I was all like showing off. Now I'm like, I can't ever remember. But one of the guys on, on Voyager creates, they have this really cool room called a holodeck where they can create any reality. It's pretty amazing. If we had one of those, you would never see my face again. <laughs> but he creates this pool hall in France called Sandrine's. And it's just a place for everybody to hang out. They go there, they shoot pool, they drink, they whatever. They have a really tough mission. And at the end of it, Janeway shows up at Sandrine's. She shoots around a pool with them gets everybody around, and then she leaves, right? So she comes in, she engages, has a good time, right? It's, it's authentic, it's real, but she draws a line and she's like, okay, now you guys have a good time. I'm out of here. Jeff, there are some leaders that head in the sand, they think they do everything right, but then there's the others that are really hard on themselves, that... They're, they're a tough grader. They're really critical of themselves. Monday morning quarterback. What tips can you give for that leader or coach that, you know, stays awake at night thinking all of the things they did wrong? Wow. You know, this happens. This isn't just a leader thing, right? I mean, you work in sports. That's every athlete. That's every performer that has, has ever lived. And gosh, if we thought about every single thing we ever did wrong, like we wouldn't have time to do much else with our day, you know? So I think the advice I, I give people is what's, wh where does your motivation come from? Like, that's a, the question I would ask. What motivates you? Does the thing that motivate you come externally? Is it validation from others? Is it a job title? Is it how much money you make? Or does your validation come internally, right? Back to our conversation about the why. Like, am I grounded with my why and, and do, I, do I feel good because of what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing? And if I mess up, then I can step back and I can say, you know, hey, that's a cliche, but it's real. You know, failure is a step towards success. It helps teach us to be better at doing things that we're working towards. And so I would really coach those people to focus their validation inwardly. When I'm concerned about external validation, if everything I do, Jeff, I'm reporting to you and I'm just worried about you saying, hey, good job, Jeff, you did good. Hey, nice job on that report. I really liked your use of the color scheme. If I'm worried about that all the time, I'm never going to be able to actually achieve anything. And then even if you don't say anything, right, this, is, this creates that. So I send the report off to you. I don't get anything. Maybe I get a thank you, you know, or whatever that I'm like, well, he didn't say he liked it. Should I have said this? Did I not say enough of that? And I get in this awful spiral thing that now I'm not paying attention to the people I'm supposed to be supporting. But if I can focus internally on my why and what I'm like, why I'm doing this stuff, and then I can say, okay, I sent it off. Check the box. Good. If he's got a question, he'll hit me up. And then you do have a question. Hey, you screwed this up. These are the numbers from last quarter. What's going on? Oh, shoot, man. I'm sorry. Did they get you any trouble with that? I hope not. Here, let me update that for you. Here you go. I think that that self-doubt really calms with people being overly worried about what others think of them, what their job title is. And it just takes time, it takes some coaching for people to understand that it doesn't have to be about that. And I think the other magic thing to figure out that's a lot harder than even that is it's not personal, right? Like when my boss yells at me, they're not yelling at me. They're yelling at the work product that I did. 
You know, and if they are yelling at me, I should probably find a new boss, right? Get somewhere else. But we take everything so personally because we assign our professional value to our work product instead of to our skills that we're bringing and, and, and how we improve the workplace. And again, that just comes back to that internal versus external motivation and, and validation. Jeff, I want to go back to the the previous captains of the enterprise and the portrayals that over the years and in the different shows. And I know this is can be is a constant debate between Star Trek fans. It's in some cases it's either Kirk or it's Picard. Just real briefly talk about the difference in Picard's leadership and maybe compare him to Cisco and, and Janeway, which you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the three captains most kind of, you know, associate with the nineties and the two thousands. And then, and then let's talk about the newer captains, Lorca and uh, the newer portrayal of, of Pike and the, in the, in the newer episodes. Uh, let's kind of get into those, their leadership styles, some of the differences. Well, I think the first thing you have to acknowledge, and you'd see this in any company or business out there too, they have different jobs, right? Like they're the captains, but captain Kirk leads a crew of about 413 people. Captain Picard, a thousand people. Captain Cisco, he's on a space station handling politics and trade and commerce. Then you've got Janeway, who's out, you know, 70,000 years away. They have different roles. The rank may be the same, but what they're trying to accomplish is different. So one of the fun questions people like to ask is if Cisco or Picard or even Kirk ended up you know, 70,000 light years away. How long would it take him to get back? You know, or what would that have looked like? But I think each captain brings such different things to the table that are appropriate to their job in there. So we talked about Kirk and his cowboy diplomacy. Mirror that, juxtapose that, it's one of my favorite words, juxtapose, with Picard, who is the consummate diplomat, right? He knows all the right things to say. He studies the cultural nuances of the people that he's going to interact with they're on a true first contact mission. Also, they're in a Starfleet in a Federation that's 80 years ahead of where Kirk was. So they're smarter at this. Yeah, they're smarter at this stuff. One of the first things that happens in the first episode of The Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint, William Riker, the first officer, comes in. He's like, you know what? You're not going on away missions. You're the captain. And so immediately like that cut the legs out of that classic Star Trek trope, you know, of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the three most important people on the ship beaming down into unknown dangers. So Star Trek The Next Generation shifted that. But you got a Picard because of that, who was more focused on what was going on on the ship. How are they going to interact and interface with the next culture? A little more planful. Then you get Cisco, who's thrown off to Deep Space Nine on a, on a space station. He's not flying around. He's not making first contact. He is dealing with the commerce and the politics of a very certain set of, of space. So it's not that agility, I'll say that diplomatic agility that Picard has, where he's got to talk to this race this week and this one the next week and figure it out. For Cisco, it's understanding the geopolitical, the galactic political ramifications of the Cardassians this and the Bajorans that and the Federation this. While at the same time, being a religious icon for for the the group that he's there to to uh, you know to really protect. What I love about Cisco though is because they're a little more grounded, right? Like they're not off necessarily risking their their lives beaming onto planets and going all over the place. Is he really connects with his senior staff in a super cool way? 
what I'll talk about in a moment, like with Pike, Cisco was the first to do this, but he would cook for his team. In the 24th century, apparently, we're not going to have to cook. They've got these replicators that you just say, you know, tea, Earl Grey, hot. Boom, there it is. You know, or whatever it is you've ever wanted to eat, you just beam it in. And apparently, it's supposed to be super healthy, right? So you can eat chocolate cake all the time and the little computer beams in all the nutrients. Be all for that. But Cisco goes old school, right? And he gets like a Bunsen burner and all kinds of stuff. And like he's, you know, cooking up some uh, Cajun style food for his crew, really demonstrating that servant leadership by physically serving them food and creating a place where they can be friendly and they can connect. Mirror that, mirror that with Lorca. If you've watched Star Trek Discovery, you get the joke. Uh, but Captain Lorca is the worst guy ever. Like he's legitimately evil, but what he brings and what you see until you know, he's legitimately evil is he is your military authoritative, no nonsense captain. I say it, you do it. No questions, make it a, a reality. And there are times that's a necessary trait. I like to think of CEOs in a couple of categories. And one of them is the sacrificial CEO, Right, I need to have this person come in, bust everything up, shake up the world, make a whole bunch of people mad. Then we're going to cut him loose. He already knows this is going to happen. It's all part of the plan, but you will have to fix everything, and then we're going to sacrifice you. That's Lorca. Come in, solve the problem, and then get out. Hop to the next company that it happens. The Captain Pike in Strange New Worlds. Star Trek has been out for over like 55 years now. Like we're approaching 60 years. I think we're just like two or three years. I think in 66, it will be 60 years. And the writers have done their math. And they've kind of taken every great leader, every great captain that's come, come along. And they said, thou shalt be named Christopher Pike. Because Anson Mount, who plays, plays Pike in Strange New Worlds, and the way they write this character, this guy's it. It's funny. He's cool. He cooks for everybody. In fact, he does this thing. Cisco cooks for his senior staff, which is great. Keeps the team united, whatever. There's scenes with Captain Pike cooking for the cadets that are doing a tour on the ship. He doesn't care what your rank is. He's bringing everybody through. And what I love about Captain Pike, and again, he's commanding a crew of around 400. So you think scale on that, this would be harder to do if you were the CEO of 10,000 or even Picard with 1,000. But he knows everybody's name. And he knows little cracks, like he can make these little cracks. He's going to get beamed down to a planet once. And he's like, hey, don't forget the, don't forget my socks, you know, Mr. Kyle. Ha, ha, ha. So he makes these little jokes that are meaningful to the person and the job. Pike does. He's got that magic quality where he makes every member of his team feel like they're important. No matter, you know, what their, what their role is. Other captains in Star Trek have had that, but he's so apparent about it. It's it's amazing. And that's one of the things I love about using Star Trek to teach leadership is there's these different slices and these different approaches to things. Because the other dirty secret of leadership is there's not one single model you can follow. In fact, if you're a person who's like, oh, I bought Simon Sinek's newest book and I watched Brene Brown's little thing, uh, newsflash one, Simon Sinek has never managed a person in his life. And you should probably like, he says cool things, right? But you know, until you've had that single mom staring you in the eyes from across the table, telling you about her irritable bowel syndrome and why she needs to adjust her schedule. Until you've had that experience, 
Those are all just really cool things to say, Simon. That's awesome. But you have to be able to adapt your style to the people you're working with, the situation you're in. And Star Trek, with over 800 episodes, so many captains, gives you all of those things, oftentimes wrapped up in a really pretty bow, ready, ready to hand off. Those are great points. And, and I've got to say, Isaac's, you know, as Lorca, you know, it was it was the perfect typecast in my mind because he had already played that role in the Patriot, you know, you know, as the British officer. He played it as the Ranger officer in Black Hawk Down. Yep. You know, it was kind of like it's a natural fit for him as a as an actor. Yeah, it was great. They even got to lean on like his accent and stuff, because at one time they had to pretend he was somebody else and whatever. But he I was when when you learned he was evil in there, and again, spoilers, these are a thing, but when you learn he's evil, you're like, well, of course he is. Like that explains so much. But also, God, he was great. I love this. Like I wanted to like him so much, but he was just a jerk the whole time. But yeah, Jason Isaacs, one, just what a great actor. And I'm so glad he's in the uh you know pantheon of Star Trek now. But he did, he played that role too perfect. I think that's one of the other secrets that Star Trek has figured out is casting. I mean, Chris Pine did an admiral job as Kirk, but there's no one but William Shatner. Patrick Stewart is Picard, you know, I mean, oh, just, I mean, they're perfect. Right. So, so Jeff Osterman, I'm sorry. I, I had to geek out here a little bit and, and, and full disclosure, my first date with my wife was Star Trek four. We went, what? To, we went to the movie. Yes. That, that dates it right there. That well, and she stayed me. with you. That says and, a and lot. She stayed, and she stayed with me and she was a Star Trek fan too. So that, that was, uh, that was a, a great fit there. But, uh, okay. So Jeff, I, I have to ask, how did you get into pro wrestling? Oh, you wow. Tell us a story and, 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 uh, and let's just go with that. Pro wrestling. Well, uh, full disclosure, I think this is important to my story. I am a hot-blooded white male who was born in the 1970s. So pro wrestling was just part of everyday life. Now, some listeners are hearing pro wrestling and they're like, oh, you mean that? You mean that fake, that fake stuff? Well, I'll tell you this right off the bat. I have an orthopedic surgeon that would argue with you about how fake this stuff is it's pro wrestling is theater in the round. It's the classic story of good versus evil told through the universally understood language of violence. It's beautiful. And as a kid growing up, pro wrestling was literally a comic book come to life. When I grew up, right? You had, uh, you had, you had your NWA stuff going on on TBS. So you had guys like Ted DiBiase, you had Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes doing their stuff. And then WWF started off Bob Backlund, Iron Sheik, and then Hulk Hogan shows up. But these, these guys were super human. They were massive. They were larger than life. Just unbelievable. I wanted desperately to be one of them. And I think anyone else who kind of fits my archetype, right? A hot-blooded white American male born 60s, 70s, maybe even in the 80s. There was one moment where you were like, I want to be that guy. I want to be on the second turnbuckle on the inside with my arms raised high and the WWF Intercontinental Champion chip belt, you know, raised up over my head at the middle of WrestleMania. Like I want that moment. 
And so after I got out of the Navy and I was kind of trying to figure out what my life was going to be, I decided to train as a pro wrestler. So this was in 1998. And I started training with a guy named Jeremy Blanchard. He's, uh, I think, I don't think he's wrestling anymore, but he was wrestling mostly Tennessee and kind of in, in that area. But he's, he's from Oregon here where I am at. And that's right. I landed with him and I trained and, um, spoiler alert, I'm a terrible, terrible pro wrestler. <laughs> I was really bad at it. The level of, of the level of athleticism that is required to do what they do was just more than I was bringing to the table. I think I remember two moments in my early training because those wrestling rings, like people think they're like a trampoline or there's springs or they're whatever. No, that's heavy, heavy steel and plywood that's laid out. Like that's all that is. Well, actually, to be fair, there's a, like a carpet pad on there. But when you're moving around and jumping, like it kind of, there's a little bounce to it. So you're not just running sprints or whatever. You're also kind of going back and forth, you know, up and down on, on, on this thing. And it's hard. You get winded so fast. And then the second big thing I remember is climbing to the top rope. And they tell you to do a flip off the top rope and land on your back. And I was like, well, how do I do that without it hurting? And they go, oh, you don't. Like, it hurts. Like, that's just what you do. <laughs> I'm like, oh. So I did it for a little while. I sucked. I was no good. And uh, ended up wanting to do other things. I couldn't say no to it. You know, I couldn't walk away. So I worked as a referee for a while, um, as a manager, like Bobby the Brain Heenan. Oh, I had so much fun, so much fun doing that. But eventually I landed on doing play-by-play -play commentary and color commentary. And I did that for about eight years. I started that in 2012 and did it right up until COVID. Did it for a lot of local and regional companies, but for one big international one and uh, got to interact with a couple. But it just it was just really one of those like, dreams that I had. And then I found out that like, you can actually train to do that. Like it's a thing you can actually do. I'm going to interrupt here. I got to ask both of you. I'll give you my answer. Favorite finishing move by a pro wrestler. I'm going to go first. So you guys don't steal my answer. Figure four leg lock, Greg, the hammer Valentine. Good one. All right, Jeff, you're up. So I almost the exact same bend the sharpshooter from Brett the Hitman Hart. Ah. DDT, Jake the Snake. God. The DDT. So oh man. So you're gonna get me going here. So I've I, I know Jake. I've worked with him quite a bit. Um he's an interesting guy who's still fighting a lot of demons, and I, I wish him the best on it. But man, you want to get him fired up and mad. Have him watch any modern pro wrestling match where they just like, there's like 62 DDTs in it. Like it's a transitional move. And he's like, I almost killed people like for real doing this. And now it's just like, a, oh yeah, hit a DDT, pull them up, whip them to the ropes, clothesline, pin. Yeah, like that, would, that, that was a straight, straight murder somebody move. I thought all you had to do with Jake was just mention Bill Watts and that would just piss <laughs> him off even further. That's and see, that's so what true. I grew. That's what I grew up on. I grew up in Louisiana, so it was mid south. So I grew up with Junkyard Dog, with 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 DiBiase as a young wrestler, with with Jake the Snake, and you know, never realized his story about Grizzly Smith, the dad, yeah. you know, his dad, and just then later on as that came out, you're, you're just like, holy shit, that's crazy. There's a there's a lot like it. it 
if somebody was like, hey, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm going to break into pro wrestling, they could do really, really well. <laughs> There's a lot of damaged people working there, but man, the Mid-South stuff. So I grew up up here in the Northwest, Portland wrestling, the last NWA territory to survive, but the grappler, grappler was our man and he had a huge run in Mid-South. He was the heel to JYD's face and they ended up in a big, big tag team steel cage match somewhere. I think it was in Louisiana somewhere, but he said it was epic. JYD won the match and like people rushed the cage. They were so like, yeah, junkyard dog, he did it. And it was this huge celebration. Some of his best stories are out of Mid-South. Yeah. What do you what do you think about the Vice series? You know, the the that came out and going back and looking at all the different territories and just tales from the ring. I mean, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it just it just reminds me of how much I loved it. I you know, for me, Mid-South Wrestling would come on at nine o'clock in the mornings on Sunday. And of course, I had to be at church at 10. So I'm finding and, and I didn't ha- we're not recording it. So I'm like, I've got to find every way to sit here and make sure I watch this entire thing so that I don't miss anything. And then of course, once cable comes in, then I'm watching, you know, TBS and I'm watching, you know, I- I'm watching the, you know, Flair and Dusty and the Four Horsemen and all that. But what do you think about the the recent, I guess, that series and, and how it's kind of brought back, you know, brought it back into play? I was, I was honestly a little worried about it when I first saw it, just because like, I feel like we have some real nostalgia glasses. We're wearing them right now, you know, as we're talking about the territories, but I love it. Cause like, it shows you the dirty stuff that ha- like, it's very realistic and very well done. Cause the thing is Bill Watts and a lot of these guys, these promoters that were running these territories were just horrible human beings and treated people like garbage. I mean, they, a lot of these wrestlers were nothing more than a commodity, you know, for them. And I like that they didn't, gloss over that you know in 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 the series but also it showed just the awesomeness that was happening i i loved the way they used it when they did the deep dive into like the the polynesian wrestling and the samoans and stuff because people don't like now you see stuff you see roman reigns and you see the usos like oh we're all family and you're like no you don't understand like they really are (laughs) You know, and like there's a group of people like the Tonga brothers and stuff that like, oh gosh, the wild Samoans back in the 60s, they, oh my gosh, I'm going to get the story wrong. So just caveat, this is the wrong story, but they were riding with someone who committed a terrible, who was accused of committing a terrible crime. And they knew that the guy that they were right, the other wrestler didn't do it, but they're in court and for them to testify and say that dude didn't do the thing, they have to break character and speak English because their whole thing off and seek it, right? The big Afros. And they're just like, raw, raw, that was their whole gimmick. And they literally went up on the stand and did that in the court case. And dude went to jail, but that's what you did to protect your territory. And, you know, and, and they told that story, you know, and, and, and it's like, yes, tell that story. Cause that's, they call it kayfabe, um, which is like, it's carny or the wrestler way of saying fake, but, like that's a real thing. Like good guys and bad guys had to stay in different places. If you rode in a car with your, with your, you know, your, 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 your opponent, you'd get fined or fired, you know? Oh, it was such a, it was a magic time back then. And I really enjoyed that series. It's really good. Jeff, I could do this all night. We get to wrestling all this. I, I could, I could be here all night talking about this. I, I love well, Let it. me, let me try to blow your mind a little okay. bit with pro wrestling. Cause I used to do a talk. I got, so WrestleMania three, WrestleMania three was Hulk Hogan 
versus Andre the Giant in the Pontiac Silverdome Dome in front of over 93,000 people. A record-setting event and an iconic moment. Like the scene of Hogan and Andre in the ring. I don't care. If you've never watched a lick of pro wrestling, you've seen that image. What people don't know is Andre the Giant was very sick. He was a broken man. He died just a few years after, after this. He could barely get to the ring. And Hogan... Hogan was just this like model of a man, just you know, pumping vitamins and steroids through every single vein he possibly could. But he didn't have the ability to carry Andre through a match really well. About two-thirds of the way through, he picked him up and he body slammed Andre the Giant. And as he did it, he felt every muscle along the side of his body rip and tear. And they had like five more minutes to wrestle. So you had two broken men out there putting it all on the line in what in retrospect is a horrible wrestling match. <laughs> but I literally cried. Like when the match was announced to my parents, we have to order it. We have to get it up. I have to see what happens. It was like 20 minute long match. That was epic because these two guys understood they were working towards something that was bigger than them. Right. Andre the Giant has passed away. Hulk Hogan not wrestling anymore. And he's got his stuff going on. But even after he passes, we'll still be talking about this match. The way pro wrestling works is if I'm wrestling you, Jeff, my job is not to look good. My job is to make you look good. And the same for you. Right. And you go in there with this trust that one, you're going to take care of me. You're not going to drop me on my head and permanently injure me, but also you're not going to make me look like an asshole and you're going to build me up and make me, you know, kind of worthwhile. So that's how Hogan and Andre walked into this and they literally broke their bodies. That to me is leadership. When you're working towards something bigger and you give all of you to make the other person look and be good because you're working towards something bigger, yeah, you might be working in a restaurant or you might be in manufacturing, but you can have your own Hogan and Andre moment every day when you're acting as a leader. I got, I got that out of wrestling. When I was learning the whole thing, I'm just like, oh my God, like the basis of pro wrestling is literally the foundation of good leadership. <laughs> What's the term getting getting them over or getting you yep. over? That's yep. that's the whole thing. Good stuff. Let's have a little fun. Uh, we could do. We may have to have a spinoff second episode with bringing some old wrestling people. Oh, yeah. It would be great, Jeff. What's the last series you've binge watched? Stranger Things. Last book you read? Dune, the God Emperor of Dune. Okay. Favorite animal at the zoo? Elephant. All right. How about growing up? Can't say Star Trek. Your favorite all-time TV show? You took the big one off the table. So I, I, <laughs> I am going to think for a second here. I'm going to go with Night Court. Very nice. I love Night Court. And, and they're coming back with the new... A new version of it. Yes. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. I have one more lace and then I'll let you go. Jeff, vacation. You get one week, one month, one year. What are your three places? You can go for a week to somewhere, a month, and a year. Where are you going? If I have a week, I'm going to go somewhere tropical, probably like uh, 
Cancunish sort of a thing, all inclusive fun thing like that. If I have a month, I'm going to the going to the mountains. I'm going to go up where it's snowy, where it's quiet, and there's nothing going on. I have a year. I'm going to Munich. I'm going to Germany, and I'm going to go experience all of the great stuff that Central Europe has to offer. Okay, Jeff, it's a it's a Friday night at your home. You're you're relaxing. What is on the grill, and what is in the glass? Whiskey, bourbon is what's in the glass. That's the easy one. What's on the grill? Here's where everyone's going to immediately, here's where everyone drops out and they're like, screw. No, we got to call a timeout. He's got to be more specific, Lace, and we're not letting him off. The well, hook. yeah, I'm gonna, I was going to ask him what, yeah, be more I specific mean, on the bourbon here. Four yeah. roses. Four roses. That's where Ooh. I go. Okay. Yeah. It's a good thing that uh, that my wife has a really good job. Let me just say that. <laughs> but I balance. Four roses, small batch? Small, every time. Every time. If, in a pinch, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm at the I'm at Red Robin and they've got nothing here. What am I? Then it's going to be a Maker's Maker's Mark. You can't go wrong, right? Good stuff. But and actually, I mean, I'll take that. Otherwise, in fact, short, really quick, short story. I used to be work for a wrestling company that taped out of Sam's Town down in Las Vegas. Really great off the strip casino. A lot of fun. Not a real deep uh, bar that they're working with there. And it was always, always Maker's on the rocks whenever I'd go to Sam's Town. So. Fun thing there before roses on the grill. Here's where everyone loses respect. Hot dogs. I love hot dogs, man. I'm with you. I love a good. Oh, yeah, it's, can... it's not my first choice, but I love a good hot dog. Okay, well, but are, are we talking Nathan's? We talking Oscar Mayer? What, 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 what are we talking here? So he, I'm usually a Hebrew national guy. Like uh, you know, they answer to a higher power, so uh, <laughs> you can't go wrong. But I'm not gonna. I mean, I will shake a stick at just about anybody, any other kind. Shove it through and eat it. I just love hot dogs, man. They're good. Okay, now so the next obvious question is, what goes on the hot dog? What are we? What kind of toppings are we talking here? Nothing. I like the bun. I like the hot dog. That's it. Pure, straight up, no chaser. And the chaser, maybe some four roses, but <laughs> okay. Half. Okay, couple other questions here. Who did it best, Ricardo Monteblon or Benedict Cumberbatch? Monteblon. That was a con question, Jeff. That's from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go uh, Gordon Soley versus Jim Ross. That's not fair. I, I know. I had, to throw a, I had to throw a hard one here. I'm going to go Soley. You know why? Because he ended his career when he should. Jim Ross should not be working anymore, and he still is, and it's, it's not doing him any favors. What book have you given away the most to, to others? I'm going to say it because he's one of the big reasons I'm here, but I have the watch by John S. Rennie. Is there, is there a question or is there, or is there something that we did not ask you tonight that you have, that you wanted to talk about? Because, you know, obviously we want to you know make sure that we talk about the, the podcast, the website, the blog, but is there anything else that, that you'd love to talk about that we didn't, didn't get a chance to cover with you? You know, I think we covered most of it. I think the last thing that really to put the bow on a lot of what we talked about is that, I can't not, it's not possible to overstate that we're on the cusp of a massive change in what our work life looks like. And if you don't see that coming, you're wearing blinders and you're going to get hit in the face. You have to become a better leader. You have to become a better manager and you have to prioritize the people that you're working with, or you're going to fail in the next normal that's coming. It's just, that's the reality for it. I'm a resource to help people change in that place, but there are others as, as, as well. 
for them to listen to. You've had a lot of great guests on your podcast that can do the same, but I just, I really desperately want people to understand that they can either be a part of the change or they can be the change that happens when they're flushed out because they didn't adapt. Jeff, this has been so much fun. Layson and I were, we, we spent last night talking. We were so excited, but maybe if you could tell our listeners where they can learn more, get in contact with you, social media, learn more about Starfleet. Absolutely. I have a website, starfleetleadership.academy. I can't tell you how overjoyed I was when I saw .academy was a thing that you could do. (laughs) I also have starfleetleadershipacademy.com if it's easier for you to remember that. That website will get you everything. The blog is there. The podcast is there. The podcast is anywhere you get your podcasts, Starfleet Leadership Academy, of course. And then I'm on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. A-K-I-N. Jeff, is there a must-listen podcast if somebody is, is starting the podcast for the first time? Is there one episode that you would recommend this is the best one to start with? You know, it changes frequently because I feel like I outdo myself a lot of times. And the one that's out right now, which is the first for Strange New Worlds. So Strange New Worlds, Strange New Worlds. That's a great one. A great one to start on. Another really good one that I always recommend is Next Generations. So TNG Elementary Dear Data. It's a fun episode that really lets me do a deep dive into the value of failure and how important it is. This has been great. I, uh, I love the podcast. I love the blogs. They're short. I get something out of it each time I read it. Uh, it's easy to put into my everyday life. So thank you. I know our listeners will enjoy and thank you. And uh, Lyson, This has been a great one. I've learned a little bit more about Star Trek. I'm going to go, I'm going to have to go watch a little more. I'll come back. Maybe we'll have Jeff back when I can ask some more questions. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media.